Welcome to the Mistress Reality Checklist. So it turns out the person you've been dating is married. What do you do? Well, rule number one is you run, run like hell. But if it's too late and you are already invested, then you should give yourself a reality check and pay attention to my list of rules. I cultivated these rules after watching countless women get dragged through the mud after they either came forward as the mistress or were outed as the mistress. And while this podcast is not designed to create a mistress or tell you how to be a better one, it is here to empower any person who, while they may have lost control of their heart, they can still be in control of their head. everybody. I am Christine Pfeiffer-Stocky along with Dan Stocky. And welcome to the Mistress Reality Checklist where we give out good advice based on relationships that were a bad idea. Mm. <laughs> How are you today, Dan? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm good. Are you ready to dive into our, our next tale? I'm of... ready to dive into whatever you're going to throw at me. Okay. So uh, before we start the show, uh, the broadcast, the episode, um, I always like to talk about this is not a how to become a mistress. This is not about how to become the other person in a relationship. This is not about, um, hey, he's married. I'm going to work my way into his life and make a bunch of money and be a kept woman. Because as you will find out in the majority of these stories, they go wrong. So what this is, uh, what this show is designed to do is for people, whether you're a woman or a man in a partnership, sometimes and if especially that partnership is one-sided, you make sure to look out for yourself, to watch out for yourself in case things go bad. So like I said, I start every episode kind of doing that little shtick in that spiel because it's a fine shtick. It's truly what I believe. It's, it's, this is not about, you know, go hang out in the Delta Sky Lounge and see if you can find a rich businessman who's traveling. And it's like, ew, that sounds gross. But it's also a solid idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyway, but really, so this is about, this is about making sure that you're taken care of in more ways than one, um, when it comes to affairs of the heart. Mm. All right. So without further ado, let's talk about a woman by the name of Patricia Shannon Baker. Patricia? Patricia Shannon Baker. I stumbled over her name a little bit because she is pretty much known as Pat, but. Well, it's also hard to say. Patricia, Patricia Shannon, Shannon Baker. Baker. So Pat, um, and Pat so we're going to call her Pat. We're going to call her Pat. Okay, Pat is her name. Um, and we'll get into this a little bit too, but she's more often referred to as Pat Pat Shannon, but I have my theories on that, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and Pat Shannon was the mistress of Charles Corralt. Charles Corralt? Okay, so now for those of you that aren't familiar with who Charles Corralt is, or was, I should say, he was basically uh, a beloved journalist, worked decades for CBS News. It was like Sunday morning. He wasn't was he? CBS Sunday morning. He was on the road with Char Charles Corralt. He did slice of life um, stories. The best way I could describe him is that if you're a fan of the Today Show, he's basically what Al Roker is now. Beloved, perfect, you know. Al Roker? You're putting him on uh, par with Al I at the time. I naturally, no, I'm going to agree with you. I, I remember Charles Corralt fondly, actually. Yes. He was, uh, yeah, he did those shows about Americana yeah. and, uh, hey, I'm going to go out to these strange, small little towns and, and, and show you what life is and like. And find the stories. He did, he he was he was beloved. He was a brilliant journalist. And uh, we're going to do, we're going to dive into it. And uh, I'm calling this episode, I've got two titles. I'm not sure which one I really like better, but. I can judge. <laughs> this episode is called Home is Where the Heart Is and Can Also Be Found on the Road. <laughs> Is that one title or is that the two that's, of them? That's the one title because <laughs> a, On the Road a... with Charles Corralt is where he found. Mm. On the Prowl with on Charles the, No, no, he oh, wasn't on, no, no, it's not even, no, because it's, it's it, again, this is an interesting episode because mo sometimes with, with affairs, it's not just, you know, a chippy on the side. It's, it's very complex. So. Here we go. So uh, let's go talk about Charles Corralt a little bit. And again, I always hate saying this, but it's it's these uh, the women, the, the people that are on the lower 
or end or the uh, the bad end of these relationships, whether they're male or female, usually aren't the famous one. They're usually not the person in power. So well, we always start with the person in power so you can kind of get an idea of who that person was and why um, it was a very, uh, it's a very... Um, what's what do I want to say? It's, it's I very, have no idea. <laughs> it's basically it's like oh wow you know that's Charles Kuralt oh my god you know you become very infatuated. Very yeah, so quickly. we've already forgot about Pat here because we're talking about Charles right, Kuralt. Right. And Charles Kuralt's the famous one, right? And right. Which course, again is another you know it's a kind of a metaphor going through this. So okay, so Charles Kuralt was born in 1934 in Wilmington, North Carolina. As a boy, he won a children's sport writing contest for a local newspaper. Um, he wrote about a dog that got loose on a field during a baseball game, which right there tells you about who Charles Corralt was going to be as a journalist. Yeah, very much. That's like, oh, yeah, let's let's not let's not worry about the baseball game. That dog, dog has got a that's fascinating, fascinating story. And that's funny and how people reacted to it. Uh, when he was 14 years old, he became the youngest radio announcer in the country, uh, covering minor league baseball games and hosting a, uh, a music show. 14 years 14, old. 14. 14. Wow. Um, he went to the University of North Carolina. He was the editor of the Daily Tar Heel, as well as the host of a radio show um, at college. And then during the, uh, during the school year, and then he worked at a local TV station in the summer. So he was very, he was a journalist from basically he was born a journalist he, he had a microphone he in his hand yeah. wow a microphone a pad and a pen right um he graduated in 1955 and then went to go work at the charlotte news and wrote a column called charles Kuralt's people now that's the reason why i'm giving you this backstory because again this is telling you who he was so he went right to work at a local newspaper um writing about people then in 1957 he went to go work at cbs news and he would We're at a local station uh, cbs news uh, the network he went oh, to, he went. he went, he was on a fast track. So he went to the CBS news and then he stayed with CBS news I'm, his entire career after that. I'm okay. I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, what, when did he get the job at CBS? News? 1957. So he graduated in 1955. So he's from, like 20. Well, when he was born in 30, he was born in 34. So do the math. 34. And then he got a job in what? Uh, 57, 57. So he's 23. Yeah. So he, he, the, the guy was talented AF. I mean, that's the thing. Is that, you know? Yeah, he's a wonder um, kid. The wonder kid. So uh, he goes to work at CBS News in 1957. And uh, in the beginning of the career, he was covering a lot of different things. He was uh, covering presidential elections, um, a revolution in the Congo. He did four tours in Vietnam. He was on the road a lot. And he was covering legit news then. Yeah, that yeah. Point. And not that not that what he didn't do, but it was he was no, but he it, was he, in the trenches. He it was wasn't in the trenches. No nope, pieces nope. that hardcore news stories. Okay. So he went from writing about a dog on a baseball field to doing a column about Charles Kuralt's people to then boom, 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 you're in Vietnam and covering that. Um so in 1967, uh, he's okay. He's been doing this for 10 years. Um, he gets burnt out. He's tired of covering the more intense stories and just really wanted to go back to something like he was doing in the column for the Charlotte news. He really um, wanted to go writing about dogs on baseball field and, and people because he was a people person. Sure. So, um, he goes to his bosses at CBS, the network, the network and asks if he could take a small crew and, um, roll around. This is literally roll along the great American highway and report report on the people and places that he encountered. So he's like, come with me, you three guys, we're just going to go on a road trip. We're going to stop a couple of places and just see what folks around this great country of ours are doing. So it's a good idea for a show. Yeah. And it, it was basically going to be a three month project. The, the segment was called on the road. It aired on the CBS evening news with Walter Cronkite. You young kids look that up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what was Walter Cronkite sign off? It was really and that's the way, way it was. is. That's the way it was. Or is that the way it is? Or that's the way it was? Oh, that's, that's the good. way it That's the way it was. This is the CBS News with Walter Cronkite. And on a side note, if you ever want to see like the footage of like when President Kennedy was shot, you know, Walter Cronkite is the one they always yeah. show. If you, you know? want to, yeah, if you want to know who a newscaster really is. Or what begat the modern quote unquote newscaster, it was Walt, Walter Cronkite. Yeah. You know, he was beloved, trusted. Anyway, so Charles Kuralt decides I'm going to take these guys. I'm going to go on the road. Uh, it's going to be uh, a segment airing on the CBS news with Walter Cronkite. And it was supposed to go on for three months and it ended up lasting for 25 years. So for 25 years, Charles Corral went on the so road. So that one show, they were like, wow, that's a great piece. Keep doing Keep that. Doing it. And, Keep it, doing it. and it just worked yep. forever. Yep. Wow. Um, yeah. So nice work, Charles Corral. So one of the stories now here mm. comes Pat 
Shannon Baker. So one of the stories Charles covered was about a young divorced mother of three living in Reno, Nevada. Mm. Um, and who, this woman wanted to make a difference. And this woman was Pat Shannon Baker, and she would become Charles Kuralt's mistress. So she was originally... A subject. A subject of, of a story. Of a story. That, okay. That, that aired and everything. So uh, let's talk about how Pat became the subject of a on-the-road segment. So Pat's divorced mother of three. Now, this goes back to my theory about why she was Pat Shannon Baker and then Pat Shannon. I'm sure her married name was Baker, um, and she kept that name because her kids were little. Her three sure. kids were little. So um, if I refer to her as Pat Shannon or Pat Shannon Baker, now you know why. Um Another interesting thing in doing these stories is that a lot of times you don't find out as much as you want to about the mistress. And so it's basically like, I like to give them an identity or a face. Um, yeah. There's a lot to be said about Charles Corral because yeah, uh, he's, he's a legend. in the news. Yeah. He's not only in the news, he's a legend. And unless these women go off or these men go off and write a book, you don't get to know as much about them. So um, like I said, I, I just kind of like to give them a little bit more of a voice. So, Pat's living in Reno, Nevada, and every morning on her commute to work, uh, she worked at a power company. She would pass by this vacant lot in this desolate neighborhood, and she would drive by it every day and just say, wow, what can I do with this? How can I make a difference in this community? Um, you know, it's just, it's a waste. And it was in a, it was in a quasi dodgy neighborhood. And she's like, there's just, there's beauty in there. And I, I, I want to, you know, be the change. Mm -hmm. So she wanted to be the change you want to see in this world. Exactly. Okay. So in the spring of 1968, it came to her. She said, she figured, you know what? I'm going to take that vacant lot and turn it into a park. And Pat called city leaders, engineers, landscapers, contractors to help with the project. And in three months, she had everything she needed, including volunteers to do the work. So she was a force. So she was able to rally, you know, and we're getting 1968 now. We're what, 50 years? And you can't get shit done now. <laughs> you can't, you can't call rally the trips like the that. City leaders. And I'm not bitching about nowadays, but it's like, geez, you know, like, but she was able, she made the phone call. She did the legwork. And keep in mind, she's a single mom of three and she has a full time job. So she's a pretty, She's a pretty, you know, go gung ho. Yeah, let's she's, get it done she's woman. You're using your time wisely. Yeah, yeah. And I love the fact that she wanted to make a difference. So, and this is in Reno. In Reno, right. Okay. In a neighborhood of Reno. I don't know exactly, but she's like, hey, I want to kind of raise even more awareness about this project. And she wanted to do it all in a weekend and she wanted to kind of publicize it. So she just figured, you know, I heard about this reporter that's going around the country doing human interest stories. And, you know, he's on the CBS News with Walter Cronkite. Maybe I'll give him a call and see if he wants to do a story on this project. Yeah, why because not? Because this is a really bootstrap, grassroots, a gal with an idea kind of thing. So she called CBS in New York and ended up talking to Charles Kuralt. You know, this is there's a, there's, no gatekeepers apparently in 1968. Well, then the lesson learned here is, you know, if you want to ask the question, what you need to do is pick up the phone, make some phone calls, find the person, and you might just stumble you on might, to Charles Corral might just pick up the phone. You never know. So, um, this was called the Park in a Weekend Project, and to Charles, it sounded like the perfect on the road story. Now, uh, keep in mind for those of you that, that don't know enough, I've already said it, I apologize, but his segment was called, I did say it on the road. And actually he ended up writing a book called Charles Corral on the road. So on the road is a very important phrase in this. Okay. So, um, he talks to Pat and he's like, yeah, this is the kind of story. And not only is it the kind of story that I would like to do, it's the kind of story we need. The Vietnam War is still going on. Um, it was the height of the civil rights movement. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Um, Bobby Kennedy, race riots. It was just an the, ugly time. And this is a, a story that you can stop and just breathe on for a second. Exactly. And the beauty of Pat's project, the park in a weekend, it was people of all different ethnicities coming together to do this. And Charles was like, well, if all these people can come together for a greater good, well, that is a story that needs to be told, especially at this time. So it was uplifting. It was about community. It was about, you know, we're, we're different, but we're the same kind of thing. So Charles heads off to Reno, Nevada, 
And when he gets there, there are 700 volunteers working, transforming this vacant Jeez, lot Malone. into a park. So this is not just. Do we you have know, any idea how big this park was? Because 700 people, man, that no, it's a you know, that's a lot of people. It's a vacant lot. And I'd be curious to see if the park still exists. It's kind of hard to know what happened to it. I would I would hope that it does, but. Um, so Charles is doing this report, and uh, if you guys ever have a chance to look up Charles Corralt on the YouTubes or whatever, you know, he has this voice that is just soothing and just, you I would know, try to do my impersonation, but I can't. You won't. It, you know, he has a little bit of a North Carolina draw in him, but it's not, it's just like, it's just so perfect. So um, he, he says in his report, and I'll quote, um, God, it's so hard to not do Charles Peralt as I do this. So, uh, yeah, good luck pulling is, off a he Charles tells, He's telling the viewers, almost lost in this crowd is a slight pretty woman named Pat Baker. The whole crazy idea of building a park in two days was hers. Her idea became everybody's idea, and Pat Baker is watching her dream happen out here in the sun. Hm. Well... A slight, pretty woman. A slight, pretty woman. Charles. Charles has already got the hots for her. Yeah. Uh, so that night, you know, he does the story. He, he interviews Pat, talks to Pat. And uh, that night, Charles invites her to dinner. She accepts. Hmm. Um, you know, probably like, oh, well, you know, he did a story on me. Let's just continue chit-chatting, you know, just let's go out for a meal. I don't think she thought there was anything weird going Untoward. on. And, yeah, and I'm not saying that Charles maybe had other ideas, but... She was a slight pretty woman, he noticed. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> he picks her up, and he arrives at her door with three dozen red roses. All right, so Charles did have some... Well, you know, is it still a professional courtesy, or is it romance? I don't know. Three dozen red roses. That's a lot of roses. Okay, so then... Pat and Charles are going to leave, uh, but before they do, uh, she introduces Charles to her three children, uh, Kathleen, Jr., and Shannon, 13, 11, and 9, respectively. So just to kind of give you an idea, we're in 1968, so those 13, kids are born in the 50s. You know, okay. so this again, this becomes important down the road. Um, Charles even meets Pat's mother, who was there oh. to babysit. So. Charles meets the whole family, basically. So Pat and Charles uh, go out to dinner. They spent the entire night in the hotel, his hotel lobby, talking about their lives. Uh, she was 34 at the time. She was from San Diego, the daughter of an auto body worker. Do we know how old he was at this point? He was 33. Oh, okay. So he was born and raised in Wilmington, North Carolina. He was the son of a school teacher and a social worker. Uh, she worked in public relations. Uh, he was a journalist. She had been divorced for five years. He had been married for six. Wait what? a minute. <laughs> he had... What? <laughs> Still married, right? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. There married. are a lot of parallels in their lives until you get to that one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, whoa, whoa, married. Uh, yeah, he, he had been married to his second wife at that point for six years. Whoa, he had a wife before that? Well, yeah, that one ended in a divorce. And in a divorce, they had they, his first wife. He and his first wife had two daughters. So um, he was young when he married his first wife. It didn't last very long. And then he married his second wife in 1962. Um, and they had no children, just to kind of, you know. Okay. But anyway, at that time in 1968, Charles Corralt was married to Suzanne Petey Baird. Um, is that a Petey Dash Baird or is it? Her nickname was Petey. Oh, her nickname was Petey. So, okay. yeah. So if you hear me refer to Petey. That's Charles Corralt's second wife. And the one the, that she's, that, that he's, he's current, presently currently married. married to, right? Okay. Uh, the other one, they had been divorced, amicable, no problem. Um, so now here is where, going forward, it worked to be Charles Corralt on the road. <laughs> uh, because prior to marrying Petey, uh, Petey was, um, she was a secretary for someone at CBS news. So okay. she, he knew her through the office, so to speak. Um, they dated, you know, sure. a, she did not work for him. Let's just say that. So it wasn't a case of that just to be clear. So prior to marrying Petey, um, he wanted her to know, Charles wanted her to know that, Hey, I travel a lot. Okay. I travel a lot. Yeah. Charles brought on the road. On the he road. was on the road all a lot. the time. A lot. So, uh, and this is, this is, this is taken from Charles's memoir, A Life on the Road. The conversation went like this. Charles, I warned her I'll be traveling all the time. Petey, I'm used to being alone. Charles, I'm not kidding. I'll never have a nine to five job. Petey, 
I couldn't stand having someone, somebody always around the house. So oh, it worked out in for heaven. Charles Kuralt, you know, she, he's going to be on the road. They have their separate lives and their together lives. So flash flashback, they get married uh, in city hall in New York. Ceremony took all of a minute. They set up their home base in New York city. Boom. There it is. Right off the bat, let's call it a first date because we've already established now that it's probably not a professional courtesy between the roses and the deep conversation and all that, that Charles is obviously smitten and, you know. Three dozen roses speaks up volumes to uh, <laughs> three dozen roses. It's a lot. That's I don't a think lot you of ever roses. brought me three dozen roses. I, I, who does that? Three dozen roses. That's just too many We'll be right back with more of the Mistress Reality Check list. Welcome back to the Mistress Reality Check list. Charles is obviously smitten and, you know... Three Dozen Roses speaks of volumes to... Uh, <laughs> three Dozen Roses... It's a lot. That's I don't a think lot you ever roses. brought me Three Dozen Roses. I, I, who does that? Three Dozen Roses? That's just too many roses. On a first date, that's almost desperate. No, he's Charles Corralt. He's not desperate. Well, I suppose, you know, he's Charles Corralt, but still, three dozen roses. That's a, so, it's okay. too many. But you anyway, got to build up anyway. to a three dozen so roses. We're getting off track here. So, <laughs> so anyway, so there it is right off the bat. Pat's like, oh, okay, you're married. Um, two daughters from a previous marriage, but Pat fell in love with him or was smitten with him as well and fell in love with him right then and there because all of that was enough to overcome in her head. Oh shit. He's already married. You know, I, I should turn and walk away. Um, because after that night, Pat and Charles ended up having an affair that would last for over two decades. Let me do the math. Three, almost three decades. Yeah. Charles was traveling all the time, you know, and mm -hmm. PD. Did he give the same, uh, sort of caveat to Pat? Like, no, Hey, see, I'm going to be on the road all the time. Pat knew that and she was okay because pat knew that she would never have him full-time because he had Petey and his two daughters on the other side of the country so she was clear on that she was 100 percent clear she was 100 percent clear that you know he's married he's got a wife and a whole nother life and you know she had been married she had had kids she at that time was not looking for marriage and she loved him and she's like, okay, well, if this is what we have for now, then great. Okay. Um, and Charles was very attentive, very attentive to her. So she never felt like she was being ignored. Um, uh, he was traveling all the time. He would always give her a call, always come to visit. At that time, uh, Charles was becoming a huge part of the family and a huge part of her family's lives. Um, when he visited, he would stay with Pat and, uh, her children were there and sometimes her parents were there. So he became integrated into the family. Now keep in mind too, this is going back to a day and age where there wasn't like the internet or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok. Right. But this is interesting. Like he shows up after being on the road for a while and he's got essentially a second family. It's a traveling salesman job. When you think about it, it's, it's, yeah. you know, not that he was a salesman, but he would have to go on the road whether it was home to New York City or on the road to do stories, and then he would come and spend quality time with Pat, her kids, her parents. So he, when yeah, he, everyone's in on the on the thing. This is like coming home from a long trip, and yeah. here's your family. And I, I don't know to be honest, because I, I honestly, Pat wrote a what wrote a memoir down the road, and I haven't read it, so I don't know if she ever told her parents about Charles being married or the kids or whatever. I, I don't know that, but you know, Pat's family loved Charles. Uh, her kid Jr. He gave him his first baseball glove, um, taught him how to sail, got him into a prep school in Arizona where one of Walter Cronkite's kids had gone. Wow. Um, when he thought Jr. needed to see a little bit of the world, he took him on the road with his camera crew, uh, got him an internship at CBS. Wow. He paid for Kathleen, the one of the daughters, to go to law school at the University of San Francisco. Um, he attended the kids' graduations and birthday cards. Gave, he's like he's involved in their hold lives. On, hold, go, on, oh, hold on, hold okay, on, hold on. More. He gave them walking around money. He gave them job references, and when he sent them birthday cards or letters, he signed it Pop. Oh my goodness gracious! Right. So, so they're calling him Pop, and they would send him cards on Father's Day. Okay, this is, they he's he is definitely right. a big so, part of their lives. So while he may have while while Charles may have been someone else's husband. Other than their moms, he was 
He was dad to them. Considered their father to them, right? Um, Yeah, regardless of what he thought they were. To him, he was pop. Yeah, to all of them, they were like, yeah, "Yeah, that's dad right there. So in the fall of 1970, so now this is is not that long of of anything going on. So you can see how quickly he integrated, you know, um, you know, right off the bat. In the fall of 1970, Pat and her kids moved to San Francisco. Uh, Charles helped them move. He paid the rent. Uh, Pat started her own consulting firm. And uh, Do you know what she consulted in? No. I mean, Pat Shannon, Baker, and Associates. But she was a um, uh, said she was in PR, right? Well, yeah, and here's and here's the thing, and I don't want to rag on Pat Shannon Baker because I, I'm going to say this: I think she was a single woman, divorced, trying to find her way because she had tried different businesses after this as well, and not to say they failed because hey, man, if you could try it, good good for you. So she started a consulting firm, but you know her business wasn't going great, and it wasn't enough to make ends meet. So Charles made up the difference when Pat was always like, "Oh God, you know, no, I should be doing this on my own." Charles would always say, don't worry, we're rich. Ooh. So don't worry, honey, we're rich. Um, he was, for all intents and purposes, the man of the house. Of course, he was still the man of another house. That's also. very true. <laughs> and we have to think that Pat, in the back of her head, still understands that there is another family there is somewhere a, else. a wife and another life, as I always put it. There is a wife and a whole other life. I mean, really with this guy, too. Yeah. I mean, I mean, because we'll get to that about how he had a second life <laughs> sure. as we're, as we're showing here. So, um, so Pat always knew that Charles was married, but they never talked about it. You know, um, Charles didn't bring it up. Pat didn't ask about it. Uh, you but know, just don't, don't kick the sleeping dog. Yep. Yeah. And just like, Hey, I will have him part-time because regardless of whether, you know, Petey has him part-time because of his life, I have him part-time and that's fine. Um, so even though, they were a part-time couple. They did travel a lot. Um, and this is where, again, this is where this becomes important down the road. In 1975, they rented a house at a ranch on the Big Hole River in Twin Bridges in southwestern Montana. So Twin Bridges, southwestern Montana is important here. Um Charles and Pat fell in love with the place, and then they rented the same exact cabin every year until the fall of 1981, and it was in the fall of 1981 that they said, okay, we love it so much here, we're going to buy some land of our own on this river in Montana. Okay, so- And by they, I mean him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, don't worry, honey, we're rich. We're going to, we're rich, right? Um, So- they go to this place. Now, they were going to this place then for like 10 plus, no, 10 years? 1975 to 1981 is about six oh, years. Oh, six years. Okay. So six years, yeah. They go to this place for six years, and then, wow, we really love it. Let's buy something. Let's buy something. Let's just, you know, instead of renting, let's buy. So Makes Charles sense. buys 20 acres of land uh, a few miles away from this house that they rent. He built a quintessential cabin. Um, he described it as rough hewn logs, deep front and back porches, and a big fireplace made of field stone. Um, and he had it situated right on the river's edge. Um, this place is, is beautiful. Right, right. And so then after purchasing that land and building the cottage, Pat and Charles were bitten by the real estate bug a little bit. And in 1985, Charles takes Pat on a trip to Ireland. And before you could say Aaron Gobra, <laughs> they were looking at houses. And, uh, Aaron Gobra. Aaron Gobra. Uh, Charles picked out a cottage in Ireland and gave the cottage to Pat as a gift. Now, here's what's really funny is, in my deep dive into this, not only did I know the name of the river this cottage is on and the town, but it's in like this Irish Gaelic and I'm not even going to try to say it. So it's that Irish. It is so Irish. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it I, I, I stinks with Irish. It yeah. smells like Irish spring. It's, it does in a beautiful way, but I was like, you know, no, but it's now he gives it to Pat. He gave it to Pat. So is this a title in the whole nut? Give Gibbs Gibbs gives it all. Here's your gift. Enjoy. So okay. the cottage in Ireland is a gift okay. to Pat. To Pat. Okay. So then now in 1987, they're at it again. So they buy the, the lands, they build the cabin, they buy the cottage in 1985. In 1987, Charles bought 89 more acres surrounding the cabin in Montana. So now he had a total of 109 acres on the Big Hole River. And now again, this might seem like, oh, wow, well, the details, it's important. 20 acres, cabin, and then 90 more acres, 89 more acres. He then 
bought uh, an abandoned and dilapidated old schoolhouse for about 15 grand, had it moved and restored. Uh, Pat oversaw the project. The guy that was doing the work said that Pat and Charles worked in concert of restoring this old schoolhouse. And it cost about $180,000 to restore this schoolhouse on their Move it, restore it. Yeah, this uh, this all sounds like, like so much stuff to do together as a as a team as a couple as a couple let's not call it a team they are a couple right. and charles you know he loved his life in new york city he loved montana so montana it's it's like you know it's like his two i don't even want to say personalities because he wasn't one way with pd and one way with pat it was just like he had a life in montana that was like the cabin the river the fly fishing uh, it also had a special place in his heart i believe for his dad so he had like this pull to montana that was beyond just his life with pat and then he had this pull to new york city that was with pd so hold so, on for a second then you say that his his father had come out to the Big Hole River? No, his father had, he, his father loved Montana. Ah, okay. So like, so it reminded him of his dad and just like, you know, and he was very close to his dad. So okay. uh, at the time, so they're restoring it. But at this time, Pat is living full time in San Francisco, as we talked about. Mm -hmm. But now she's starting to get a little bit restless. So if, again, we do the math here, and this is, I don't want to be a hater, but um, we're 20 years into the relationship. We're 1987, call it 20 for ease of math. Okay. Her kids are grown. Okay. You know, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So the youngest would be like 29. Nine, yeah. Right. Right. She's a little bit of an empty nester. Um, so she decides to start a company that made uh, frozen cooking stocks with Charles's help, of course. Oh, of course. Um, that company failed. And again, you know, I, I say these things not to say that, like, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do that. This is not a gal that was just, you know, give me money, let me spend it. She was entrepreneurial. She was a go-getter. And that's, and I just think it's yeah. important to kind of give her that voice and just be like. And give her that credit. You know, starting a business is very, very difficult. And making a business successful is very, very difficult. There's nothing yeah. Nothing inherently yeah. wrong with having a business fail because it's yeah, it's and, and you know, and she was good at what she did. It just that the business didn't work. So and you know, and so but Charles supported her financially on that, and at least she was. And again, I hate to say, it, at least she was trying, but she was doing stuff. You know, she wasn't yeah, just absolutely. You know, hanging around. Where are you, Charles? Right. So again, part of her restlessness, um, you know, her kids are gone, business isn't working. She's like, you know what, I'm going to go to London. I'm going to move to London for a little while and I'm going to study landscape architecture. This sounds like a, like a leap, but there, but for the grace of God, go I. But, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Remember, in 1968, she took a vacant lot and turned it into a community park with 700 volunteers. Sure. So this is a woman that... Maybe so, landscape architecture is in her blood exactly. more than anything else. You know, she's she's overseeing the restoration of a schoolhouse and this compound in Montana. You know, maybe I'll go back to doing something like that, right? Sure. And of course, Charles offers to pay for it because they're partners. And again, don't worry, we're rich. rich. So Charles comes to visit Pat in London and they found a Victorian partner's desk in the antique district of London. And so it's a partner's desk. It's a wide desk with facing knee wells. So the partners could face each other while they're writing. Oh, that sounds like a very romantic yeah. thing. Yeah. So they find this antique partner desk so they could face each other. And Charles buys it for $13,000. And again, now we're talking like 1980 something or other. $13,000. I know. It's a steal. I know. He <laughs> bought that schoolhouse for fifteen, didn't he? <laughs> right, right, right. But he put another one hundred and eighty. Yeah, there, there you go. So um, he so he has it shipped to the house on Big Hole River, the Montana house. Okay. And they talked about how they envisioned um, them writing side by side or across from each other. He writing his books and she designing gardens on the other. Um, but Pat still Sounds very lovely. Yeah, but Pat now is still like you know it's again the loneliness is starting to get to her the distraction with the kids and the distraction with her businesses and the and just sort of like i'm gonna get this partnership desk but i'm not gonna have a partner you know yeah that is, be, that, that's a little that is a little weird if you buy a partner desk but the partner's not there half the time half the time and you know exactly where that partner is you know mm. what i mean so um so now we're in 1984 and charles is going through a pretty big change in his life. He decides to retire from CBS. No, no longer he. By that time, he was hosting uh, uh, CBS Morning. He was doing on the road, and he was like, you know what? I think I'm done traveling. I want to spend time writing, concentrating on my books. And also at this time, he decided to spend more time in New York City. Mm. So he's spending a little bit more time in New York City. Um, with Petey. With Petey. 
And, you know, Pat's still in the picture. They never broken up. He still supported her in more ways than one. Um, Letters, calls, just not traveling to see each other as much. So he writes this book called Charles Kuralt's America. And this is a nice work if you can get it, man. Um, But he wrote about the 12 places he loved the most during that time of the year and why he would spend that month in that place. So... I'm sorry, this is, each chapter was, this is December, For this example, is where I want to stay. January would be spent in New Orleans. Okay, so uh, every month had a location. Yeah, so like, to him, nothing was better than New Orleans in January. Nothing better was Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina in May, Montana, September, New York City, December. So in this book, he talks about January, February, like the places, and Charles Corral, because he's wealthy enough, he's like, you know what, February, Key West, baby. I'm spending February in Key West. There you go. Right? So uh, he says, hey, Pat, I would love for you to join me February in Key West. And, you know, and she was like, you know, yeah, it's a great time of year. Um, Again, things are kind of, you know, still. So he flies her first class to to Key West and it's beautiful and sunny and the, the light shone bright on what was the truth and that Charles was never going to leave his wife. And... So something, something happened in Key West where, where I think, I just think, and I really do think that Pat is, isn't this true about relationships in general? Like once the kids are gone and grown, your dynamic and your relationships can change. Absolutely. So I know so many people who get divorced right after the kids are grown because it's like, what are we doing with each other anymore? Right. And, you know, and Pat's busy raising these three kids and she has jobs and, and then all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, but at this point, well, I mean, at this point, they're well gone. What do you mean? Oh, the kids are well gone. But yeah, but I think I think she still held out hope that I think I honestly I think every mistress, and I'm speaking for them, but it's like I think down deep they say they don't care, but they do. That yes. You know what I mean? Like if they could have them full time or just not be in hiding or just you know uh, yeah, be on the a- Christmas card. Be in a real relationship. Yeah. And yeah. I think, I think eventually, you know, and let's talk about it. That's now we're like at what? We're at 1994, I said. So 1968. So that's, that's uh, 30, 26 years, 26 years, right? Uh, 68 to 20 to 96 is, oh, 28. 28. 28. No, 94, 94. I'm sorry. No, 68 to 94 is 26 years. So yes. we're 26 years into this relationship okay. and, you know, you know, well, th- thank you all for listening to that mathematical every conundrum. episode, every episode <laughs> we do the math. Someone, I'm going to have a calculator company sponsor this so we could just like, and I know a calculator is also called your phone, but our phones are away from us right now uh, for more than one reason. Um, so Pat kind of is like, yeah, things aren't ever going to change. And she's already, she's like, right. so March comes. Where does Charles like to spend March? I don't know. January, New Orleans. January, New Orleans. February, Key West. Mm-hmm. February. March, Charleston. There so you go. he asked Pat, do you want to come with me to Charleston? And even though Charles said Charleston is the best place to be in March, Pat doesn't care. Doesn't want to find out. Um, she says, nope. For any reason whatsoever? Or is it just like, no? Nope. Just, I think like, you know, again, I haven't read her book to be perfectly fair, but she just said no. She said, nope, I spent February with you in Key West. Not going to okay. do it. Okay. Um, and yeah, and there might be some of that, you know, you spend a whole month with someone and then, but it, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Right. So then you go, oh, well, then I'm going to spend another, another month, month with him, knowing full well that it's not going to go anywhere. And, you know, and again, it's one of the rules, you know, you, not that she put her life on hold for him, but she's like, well, what am I doing? Yeah. So uh, then he talked to her about going to the cabin. Now, whether it was September or not, I don't know, but she was like, nope, I'm, I'm going back to San Francisco and we're just going to take a little bit of a breather, just a breather. Right. Okay. Um, now also at this time, it's not that things were bad between Pat and Charles. Uh, he continued to, uh, he said he wrote poetry for her, sent her poems, uh, wrote her letters. Um, very romantic, very very romantic guy sent financial support, which I know that sounds really like trashy, but it's like, it is what it is. I mean, they're right. They were just on a, they were just taking a breather. You know what I mean? Like they didn't stop contacting each other. They didn't stop communicating. I think Pat just sort of drew a line in the sand and just said like, you know, let me step back for a little while. And like any couple, they were just, I think, going through a hard time. Like, you know, cause again, remember Charles was just retiring you know, we, we've seen other couples when... And so he's going through some changes as well. He's going through some changes too. And hey, drop everything because I'm retired now and whatever. Um, 
you know, so they were just going through a tough time. And then uh, I got this quote directly from Pat later, she would say, whenever they were going through a hard time, and Pat wanted to end it or thought it should end. Charles, this is the quote, Charles said he thought we had too much invested to just toss it aside and was eager, as I generally was, to have reconciliations. So they would go through these bumps and rather than go, fuck it, we're done. They'd be like, whoa, 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 it's, it's 26 years. You know, let's, we've spent a life together. Let's, let's work this out. Right. Right. And just do whatever it takes. Just muddle through, you know? And, and, you know, like I said, Pat never forced the idea of marriage on him, but I think at a certain point she was like, okay, I'm, I'm tired of being number two. So in October of 1995, Charles goes in for heart bypass surgery and he sent a letter to Pat's son, JR, with a check for $50,000 in it. And he wrote, and I quote, if I should die, highly unlikely, they tell me, cash it immediately. Don't fail. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Thanks, Pop. We'll be right back with more of the Mistress Reality Check list. Welcome back to the Mistress Reality Check list. And he sent a letter to Pat's son, JR, with a check for $50,000 in it. And he wrote, and I quote, if I should die, highly unlikely, they tell me, cash it immediately, don't fail. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Thanks, Pop. Yeah, thanks, Pop. So that alone, and again, this is just my opinion, Charles is, you know, kind of thinking about, okay, whenever you have surgery in a major procedure like that, you realize your own mortality. Yeah, yeah. and then you better cover your bases, the, the, the bases that you think are important to cover. And let's do the math again here. He was born in 34. This is 95, so he's 61. Did we get that, get that right, right off the bat? Yeah, you did. So he's 61. So, you know, at 61, you know, you still got a lot of living to do, but you just had heart bypass surgery. So in uh, April of 1997, he handed over the warranty deed for the Montana cabin and the 20 acres to Pat. Now the cabin and the 20 acres. Cabin and the first 20 20 acres. acres. Okay. Just in refresh. Um, Not the 89 slash 90, not the schoolhouse, but boom. Pat, here you go. I I had a near-death experience. The cabin, the 20 acres are yours. You get the deed, right? Okay. Um, Charles wanted to deed over the rest of the land, but Pat said, no, let's wait. And personally, I think Pat, you know, it almost becomes too real. Like, you're like, you're not going to die. Don't do that. You're not going to die. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like a, don't say that. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't. We've got a long time to live together. We have a long time. And well, thank you for giving me the cottage and the desk and all that. You got through the surgery. You're fine. So she was going to spend the summer in Ireland. And again, this is a. In the cottage that. In the cottage. Her gifted cottage. Yeah. So in April, so in April 1997, she gets deeded over the the 20 acres of the cabin. And then she's going to go spend the summer in in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And um, she said that, hey, I'll be back in September and we're going to meet up in Montana like we always do in the fall, every September, your favorite place in the world in September. And she wrote to Charles, quote, God willing, I will see you in the fall. Now those plans don't work out. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) So he hands over this date. And again, I'm going through the dates again because it's all important. April of 1997, we're talking spring, late spring. He is not feeling well. So because he just had he had he had the the bypass surgery in October of 1995. So it was it was about 18 months. Okay, 18 months, but he's not feeling well. So he's 18 months after the surgery. Um, And he ends up in the hospital. And on June 18th of what year is it? 1997, Charles wrote to Pat, something is terribly wrong with me. Oh, no. And included in that letter was a check for $8,000 and another one for $9,000. Were there any instructions? Nope. No, no. Well, hmm. if I should die, hold on. Cash this one. I'll put it this way. Let's just put it this way. Uh, Something is terribly wrong with me. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And I'll tell you what the dot, dot, dot was in a little bit. So Pat gets the letter in Ireland. And again, there's no email and all that kind of stuff. She gets the letter from Charles. Via post. Via post. And keep in mind, her kids don't necessarily know. You know, it's not like Charles called them. Like right now, he's in in New York with Petey and, you know. Sure. 
So Pat gets this letter and she calls JR and JR calls Petey and, you know, just says, hey, I'm a friend of Charles. Is everything okay? And Petey doesn't know who JR is in the respect of, I mean, like who he yeah, is. Yeah, who the hell? But uh, she's like, yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's not great, but it's not bad either. We, we're, we think we're going to be fine. So, so, so Pat was being sneaky, sneak is what well, that was. Yeah. She was like, Hey, can someone check on Charles for me? Yeah. You know, she can't have, she can't call as the other woman and check in on him. So on June 18th, Charles writes the letter. She gets the letter, you know, and again, mm-hmm. this is, she, the ma- letter was mailed to Ireland. So let's say it took a week to get there. Let's call let's call it June 25th ish. Right. Okay. So she gets the letter. She's hysterical. And she's like, you know, tell me, is everything going to be okay? And sadly, everything wasn't okay because uh, Charles Corral passed away on July 4th, 1997 of heart failure. So within, um, what is that? Well, it's uh, 18th, 20, 12 days, like four, two You're weeks. You asked me to do math again. Right. I was like, two weeks, basically, after writing this letter, he passes away. Boom. Pat's devastated. The whole family's devastated. Again, he had this bypass surgery. He didn't lead a particularly healthy life. He was uh, he was diagnosed with lupus right around this time as well. Um, but he he liked fatty foods and cigars and drink. But he wasn't like a walking. He wasn't like a picture for you know the world's unhealthiest man. So it was still kind of like whoa, Charles. Whoa, yeah. whoa. So his but- health was complicated. So more than sixteen hundred people came to the memorial to pay their respects to this very uh, famous guy. He, he had made friends all over the nation. I'm sure he literally had family and friends and fans from across the country, um, from on the road segments, people that he covered, people that he met along the way, um, people from, um, where he, he grew up from. Uh, I believe that, uh, when he died, uh, CBS received like over a thousand, sympathy cards of just like, this is how beloved this man was yeah. as a, as a person in their living room all the time. So in addition to one of the people that he covered in the story was Pat Shannon and she was at the Memorial. There you go. She has a, she has cover. And it was at the Memorial that she decided to show fellow mourners the June 18th letter. Oh, goodness gracious. And literally the other life that Charles Carroll hid for so long came out at his memorial service because word spread of this letter and this woman. Oh man. And it, it was, and I'm sure, you know, she's a, she's an emotional wreck. Yeah. She is not you, there to grind an ax. Right. It, I mean, weird things happen when someone beloved dies. And, and especially, and I'm sure she felt guilt, guilt ridden. I mean, like they were, you know, she's like, I'll see you in September. And the next thing you know, you're like, Oh yeah. Wow. Um, so from, from everything, no one knew of Pat. No one knew of Pat. Petey didn't know. Sure as hell didn't know. Two daughters didn't know. Uh, but as we come to find out, soon the whole world was going to know about... About Pat. About Pat and Charles Keralt's other wife. So, <laughs> what now follows is a little segment <laughs> known in the estate planning circles as what not to do with your estate. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to so, get a b- bunch of advice here. And this is, this a, is not the advice. It's not rules, but this is but like, this is like, this is like, don't you know, do this. Hey, in the estate planning circles, this is filed under what not to do with your estate. Okay. So back in 1989, 1990, Charles had written Pat into his will. Now keep in mind, had written Pat into his will. Um, quote, in the event of my death, I bequeath to Patricia Elizabeth Shannon all my interest in land, buildings, furnishings, and personal belongings on Burma Road, Twin Bridges, Montana. But in 1994, Charles changed his will. And keep in mind, this is when he started to retire a little bit and things were a little bit frosty and she didn't go to Charleston in March. And, and I'm not saying he punished her, but you know, yep. just sort of like, eh, maybe you have to give him credit. He was at least kind of going, well, you know, yeah, so singing through it. he changed his will, leaving Pat completely out of it. Um, so that will, his entire state passed to his wife and his two daughters, you know, not a shocker, legal wife, two yep. daughters, right? Including the 89 acres. Correct. And the schoolhouse. And the schoolhouse. Right. Okay. Um, so, easy enough. Easy peasy. Petey and the two girls get his estate. Most of the estate was in New York, but there was also this, What a, Petey's like, what is this about? 90 acres in Montana on the schoolhouse? She never knew of it. Never knew of it. Never seen of it. Never, never, never even knew about 
anything going on in Montana until now. But she's also like, you know, well, it's part of his state. We'll just divide it up. Right. You know, like she didn't, she again, wasn't just, she was like, you know, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, Sell it and let's take the money. and Right. Right. I have no, I'm a New York city girl, no interest in Montana. So the problem here is that Pat thought that was hers. The Montana 90 acres schoolhouse, all of that, because they built it together. They lived there together. Right. And you know, yeah, the whole thing was them, just, them, 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 them. Just a little while ago, he wanted to deed it all over to her, and she was, no, let's wait. Which, don't ever wait. Cash the check. As he said to JR, <laughs> if I die, <laughs> cash the check. Don't hesitate, right? So, uh, Petey files a, probate, files a petition to probate the will in New York and in Montana. Pat files her own petition in Montana. And so, this is where it gets a little sad because... The lawyers on both sides wanted to keep the case closed to the public because until now, still, people, some people at the funeral knew, PD, the two daughters knew, the lawyers knew, but the world did not know about this. So they wanted to keep it closed. Yeah, and that would have been best for all parties involved. Just let's keep this out of the press. Right. But the judge had other ideas. He said, Charles Kuralt, and I quote, Charles Kuralt has, for all practical purposes, disclosed his double life. And we can't permit the deceased to dictate from their grave these concepts of privacy, no matter how delicate they may be. That seems very, very weird. Okay, I mean, here's here's my uh, opinion. This is a guy that wanted to be famous. The judge? The judge. You know, he could have easily said, I mean, like, there's no, there was no point in this coming out. I mean, like, you know, right Yeah, here, and after the the person's deceased, like, well, they, we can't let the deceased dictate how this works. It's, like, it's not about the deceased. Right, Petey it's about and the, Pat and the daughters didn't even want it out. Yeah, every, it's about the the survivors. It's like even when they talk about funerals, you know, it's the funerals never about the deceased. Funerals are about the people who live, right? And for a judge to go, eh, no, he led a public life, so we're going to let him live a public death. That's really horrible, right? Right. And so, boom, now it's out in the public. Petey's like, well, I got Charles's will. Nowhere in here does it say anything about Pat Shannon Baker, yeah, Patricia Elizabeth Shannon, nothing, right? But Pat had an ace up her sleeve. So let's talk about that letter she received right before he died, the June 18th letter, right? The one that started, something is terribly wrong with me. Mm, Dot, 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 dot. dot. (laughs) Ellipsis. So here's the letter. And I quote, Dear Pat, something is terribly wrong with me and they can't figure out what. After CAT scans and a variety of cardiograms, they agree it is not lung cancer or heart trouble or blood clots. So they're putting me in the hospital today to concentrate on infectious diseases. I am getting worse, barely able to get out of bed, but still have high hopes for recovery. If only I could get a diagnosis. Curiouser and curiouser. I'll keep you informed. I'll have my lawyers visit the hospital to be sure you inherit the rest of the place in Montana. If it comes to that. I send love to you and Shannon. Hope things are better there. Love, C. Dun, dun, dun. I'll keep you informed. I'll have the lawyers visit the hospital to be sure you inherit the rest of the place in Montana, if it comes to that. I take it he didn't talk to the lawyers. Well, he was pretty sick, so. Yeah, infectious diseases, never a good thing. So in court, in probate court, Pat brings forth mountains of evidence of Charles's other family, uh, letters, photographs, mementos, um, showing that, you know, they lived a life as close as a family can be without it being legal. And as, you know, no one truly, you know, has a def- definition on, you know. Right. Uh, Pat testified, Mr. Kuralt and I lived a life, and perhaps it was not a life you approve of, but it was a life together. So after all that, it was still about the letter. The letter he wrote to Pat 16 days before he died. Oh, I have it in my notes. 16 days before he died. Um, <laughs> oh, sure. You're having us do all this math, yeah. and there well, it is. It, it still keeps your brain brain strong so um the attorney my brain strong the the attorney for pd claimed the letter merely expressed an intent to make a will but it wasn't a will it was a letter boom and that was that and the court agreed the court agreed that's not a will that's just a letter pd wins yikes well note to self no because pat appeals now remember Pat is tenacious AF. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, she'll she dig her claws in, she, all right. She is not one. She is a go-getter, right? You can appeal that kind of decision. Right. I, I guess so, I have no idea. So this is a, so then in uh, 1998, the court agrees. And then sadly, in 1999, PD passes away. But 
she's still, but Pat, Pat is still uh, contesting this will, the land. And to, sure. be, and to be honest too, Pat's credit somewhat. She wasn't going after anything else on the estate, just what they built together in Montana. Yeah, she's just, this is just really about the 89 acres, right? Yep, yep, yep. And okay. the schoolhouse and, you know, and, and the partner desk. <laughs> okay, so in court, Pat testified in, in the um, uh, appeals court. She testifies, I considered, and I think he considered, and I know the children considered that we were a family. I always thought of it as ours. Charles always thought of it as ours. So in 2000, it goes to the Montana Supreme Court and it overturned the ruling. Ooh. It found the letter to be valid counsel or a supplement to his will. Interesting. She got, she okay. got the schoolhouse. She got the cabin. She got all the acres. And she kept the cottage in Ireland, even though that wasn't contested, but that's what she got. So then this is where, okay, this is where, again, like what not to do with an estate. Uh, this is the, oh, this is just one of the worst. And it's on subject, but not on subject. Um, then from the grave, Charles almost adds insult and injury to his estate. Uh, because the 1994 will stated that all the estate and inheritance taxes should be paid by the estate. So, so wait a minute. What does that mean then? Who's paying the taxes? Petey? Uh, well, the two daughters. The, the two now. daughters now. So this was interesting too. It should be okay. It should be noted that neither Montana nor New York, where the Corrals lived, are community property states. If they were, it would be clear that Corralt was giving not only his own assets but also his wife's to his mistress. Okay, if it was community property, he would have been giving away his wife's stuff to his mistress. Right. But because it's not community property. He could give away whatever he wants. He has absolute authority to right. hand over whatever he yes. wants to whomever he wants. Yes. Okay. So, okay. So then in, in his will, he says that all estate and inheritance taxes should be paid by the estate. Now, going back to like when Jackie Kennedy died and they had that big auction and people were like, oh, they're auctioning off Jackie Kennedy stuff. It's because the kids couldn't pay the estate taxes. Right. Because they inherited all this stuff and they're like, well, shit, we got to, we got to come up with some cash. So. <laughs> we so, need cash. So, but, but the estate then. I mean, wouldn't the 89 acres be part of the estate? Or what? Hold on. Okay, hold on. So Charles clearly said in his will that he wanted his estate to pay the taxes rather than those that he bequeathed property to. So the estate had to cover the taxes. So he he cut the property part right, right out, out of right out right. Oh my goodness gracious! So uh, so basically to nutshell this down, he gave a bunch of stuff to his mistress. His real family never knew about. And then they ended up paying $350,000 in estate taxes to cover Pat's stuff. Pat's stuff that was given wow. to her. And that's not, by the way, that's not the mistress's fault nope. at all. Nope, nope, nope. Again, this is why I go back to when you're going to plan, plan an estate, make sure. And maybe Charles didn't know that, but he should have talked to someone and said. We've got lawyers on speed dial, yeah. apparently. I mean, and, you know, this is about the mistresses and covering their own asses but boy from the mister's point of view yeah um and estate taxes are fucked up that's that's part of right. the thing but i mean you got to cover everyone involved here i mean this is charles corral just really screwing the pooch on on everyone yeah so so basically um pat gets everything free and clear but because it was inherited by the estate they have to pay the taxes on it right so it's again it's Lawyers, am I right? So after the after the judgment, you know, Pat's like, she's like, she's got her entire property, the all of it in Montana. She's got the cottage in Ireland. Uh, she releases a statement through her attorney. I hope the wounds of these past months can begin to be healed, and uh, we can now celebrate Charles's life the way he would have wanted us to do. Yeah, and if it would have been a lot easier had the judge said, "This is not going to be a public right thing." Right. So it's all out there. But then, okay, so this is where Pat Shannon. Returns to her life in Montana. She's out of the spotlight until she goes on Larry King. Oh, crying <laughs> in 2001. <laughs> so in 2001, she goes on Larry King. And uh, during the interview, Pat said she uh, 
didn't like to hear words. This, oh, this is why I wanted to include this. Hey, during the uh, interview, she says she doesn't like to hear words such as other woman and mistress applied to her. And this is, again, I think really, really important when you're talking about a long-term couple that were committed to each other and built a life together. And this is the danger of being a mistress, mistress. in a long-term relationship like this. Right. And, and so she said, I never thought of myself as the other woman. And then King said, you weren't a mistress. And then she said, oh no. In fact, I think that's an antiquated word. And I don't know any American woman that fits that category today because that implies submissiveness in an unequal relationship. And American women are just too feisty. Okay, I, I can see what, where she's coming from. Well, she's trying to change her narrative. In a way, well, she's you trying can't, to. You can't call yourself the other, the another wife. You can't call yourself. You know, you, technically, you're the other woman. You're the mistress. Right, but I mean, what she, I think, what she's legally, what, what she's trying to say is, if a guy's going to have a relationship with another person, with another woman, and they have this long term relationship, that isn't a mistress. That is a that's a relationship. Like, and it's it's a fun, that's what but, she's but, saying. But the, yeah, I know. But this 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 is semantics. Right. I get it because I think she's wrong. But I get legally where she's coming from, which is, you you know what's what is exactly marriage. Right, right. And and you okay. And this is just off track, but on track. But you look at like someone like Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell who've been together for decades, and they are just as married. They are just as husband and wife. So what is the definition of a relationship? Is this is was Charles Corral ahead of his time in having this type of relationship? Right. I mean, the only the only problem is that he married the one and didn't marry the other. And kept it all a secret. <laughs> kept it all a secret. Until and, his will. And screwed up his will. So uh, so we're going to wrap this up by saying um, that, so Pat appeared on Larry King to promote her book, Charles and Me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which, uh, I, 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 like I said, I kind of give her credit because maybe by that time, I'm sure she had been, well, I know she had been on the tabloids oh, yeah. as the secret other woman that, you know, blah, and, and, you know, and remember Petey died in 1999 and she's still fighting and, blah, and just screwing over the widow and kicking her. Blah. So, um, she wrote this book and I'm going to assume that it wasn't at the partner's desk. Boom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Shots fired for, so, across the party. There you desk. have it. That's a long one, but that is uh, that is Charles That's Corral. Charles Corral. That's a lot to uh, unravel there. Interesting. Let's talk about why this was a long episode. Is because this is a long time affair, a very balanced affair mm-hmm. um, that probably would have went on until his death. It even well, it did, but uh, like even longer. You know, I mean, this wasn't like yeah. If he would have lived, they would have. They kept probably would have kept going, and then maybe he would have changed his will, and God only knows what happened. But so that's why this episode was fun. But let's okay. So let's talk about the rules. Number one, realize you will never have him full time. Now this is a little bit weird because it is Charles Corralt. He is on the road, and his very his second wife, Petey, or the yeah his his, his, wife. his wife at the time knew that. And that, but that was for one reason. But then you have Pat, who ha- doesn't have him full time for a whole different reason. Yeah, for the first main reason, he's on the road a lot, and then the second reason, one he of the also things I think about road. too, December, New York City. Well, yeah, December in New York City is perfect, but it's Christmas. Where are you at with Christmas with your family? So mm, you know. You go. So there you go. Um, get every promise in writing. Another rule. Now, she kind of got that. She got, she did a good job. She, and I shouldn't say she did a good job, but he, he deeded over. He gave her the cottage as a gift. She had that deeded over to her. Sure. She had the house or the cabin and the 20 acres deeded over to her. And then, you know, what would have been from his deathbed, let's just say it. He wrote a letter saying, I'm going to start the process. Right. And she she also was in his will before he changed it. Right. But I think more importantly than, or not more importantly, but, but like an adjunct to that is if they say, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna deed over the rest of the property. Don't let your heart get in the way and say, "Oh, let's not talk about that just yet." Just take what you can get when you yeah. can get it. Yeah, and and you know it's it's one of those things. If someone's willing to pick up the check, let them. You know what I mean? Like, don't fight. Just don't pretend to fight over the check. If someone wants to pay for the check, do it. And if Charles is like, you know, I want to make sure he has this bypass surgery. I want to make sure you have this land because he knows what he's getting into too. He's you know he. He at that moment he's looking out for her best interest. And saying, he's looking out for Petey and the daughters because if he would have deeded that over to her, no one would have ever known about her. Yeah, it, this all would have went. She had built this life and this world in Montana that she thought she was that was going to be hers. So if if she would have just let him give her all of that, this this never would have even been a story. Right. We might not have ever even known. 
And I wouldn't, I honestly got, I wouldn't be surprised if she wrote the book to cover lawyers fees. I mean, really, to be yeah. honest, you know, I mean, like, so just, it's almost a rule for, again, for the guy, as much as it is the mistress, if you are sincere about taking care of this person after you're dead, or you don't want your life exposed, or you don't, you know, if yeah, you, any of that, then cover your ass through your will. Get every promise in writing, get it all in writing. So number one, realize you will never have them full time. This is like I said, a weird story, but for more reasons than one, uh, get every promise in writing. Also get items in your name. Like the cottage was in her name, you know? Mm -hmm. So that that's another rule that kind of falls in here. And then this rule falls in here, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, I, I one of my rules is make sure that he has an insurance policy that names you as a benefactor, no wills. Now that doesn't apply here, but we've already seen how weird wills can be. You know, I'm sure that he had Pat in the will and then took her out, whether it was because of our relationship isn't going great or, oh shit, if she's in the will, suddenly everybody knows about her. Yeah. You know, they're going to go to probate. That's the, go, that's they, the whole you, point. We've all seen it on TV. They get called into the lawyer's office and then they play a videotape and then all oh, from the grave. I'm going to tell you this. Or they read the lil and you're like, who's Pat Shannon? He, she, Whoa. So, uh, so those are the rules. And like I said, Pat, Pat, Patricia Elizabeth Shannon Baker, I think is an example of a great mistress, a really, really devoted, uh, you know, loved him. He loved her, loved the family. The family loved him. Um, he had two lives and maybe that's not wrong if you're, if you're not quote unquote hurting anybody. And if right. you're, if you know, I hate to say what the rules are because we're talking about you're okay. You're on the road. Okay. You have a wife. Okay. You have a life. I mean, I think, I think in the end she came out ahead, but I think in the end, sadly, Charles Kuralt was the loser in all of this. And, uh, yeah, his know, legacy was, was tarnished. Yeah. Google it. Yeah. Google it. His Wikipedia page now has a whole thing about his mm -hmm. other life. And, you know, to this day, what's really funny is you either know about it or you don't. If you're young enough, you're like, oh, yeah, I, I remember my grandma and grandpa watching him or whatever. Or you're people that are like, I think I saw on the Inquirer that he had a, you know. He had a double life. All right. So that is it. Uh, thanks for listening to this long episode. But there was a lot to talk about in this. It is quite the tapestry to weave. <laughs> That was a hell of a tapestry. It's the weaving. It's the wolfing. I gotta tell you. So, okay, that's it. Uh, so I am Christine Pfeiffer-Stocky along with... Dan Stocky. And um, thanks for listening to the Mistress Reality Checklist. And remember, even though it's not a smart idea to stay with a married man, you can at least be smart about it. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Mistress Reality Checklist. The Mistress Reality Checklist is produced by This Never Happened and recorded in beautiful downtown Duluth, Minnesota.